Shalom and welcome to Torah to the People, a podcast from Temple Israel in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Rabbi Micah Greenstein. We hope you enjoy this selection of our sermons, classes, and conversations with inspiring people from across the Bluff City and around the world. Shalom and welcome back to another episode of Torah to the People. I'm Rabbi Jeff Dreyfus, and I'm so honored to be joined by my very good friend um, and esteemed rabbinic colleague, Rabbi Brett Wiseman, who is the assistant rabbi at Temple de Hirsch Sinai in Seattle, Washington. Um, a, a classmate of mine, uh, our, we had a year in Israel together at the beginning of rabbinical school. Uh, we're together studying in Los Angeles. And uh, Brett is just a tremendous rabbi, scholar, and friend. Uh, Minch, uh, the S. If you looked up the word Minch in the dictionary, you'd see Rabbi Brett Wiseman. Uh, Brett, thank you so much for joining us today on Torch of the People. Welcome. Thank you. What a what a kind introduction. Um, amazing. Thank you. So good to be here with you, Jeff, and and of course with Temple Israel. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to having this conversation with you today. Thank you. So the reason that we asked you on the podcast today um, is to talk about the Black Hebrew Black Hebrew Israelites. You wrote your rabbinic thesis. Um, the title is Hebrew Israelism, an Expression of African-American Diasporic Identity. And this is a topic and a community that has been in the news a lot recently. Of course, we heard about, um, about Kanye, about Ye, and about Kyrie. Um, about Nick Cannon a few years ago, Kendrick Lamar has a, a whole album um, it kind of expressing the Black Hebrew Israelite identity. Um, they've been in the news, of course, because their most vocal people that we've heard of have been um, not only expressing the ideology or some of the ideology of Black Hebrew Israelitism, but it has um, come out and been interpreted as being quite anti-Semitic and also quite um, concerning um, expressions of anti-Semitism. Um, and so what, what I'd like to begin with before we get into the, the history and the ideology and the practice, um, I'd love to uh, talk about you a little bit about your life, um, about your background, what led you to want to be a rabbi, and then ultimately um, to what led you to want to write your thesis, which you could have written about anything. You could have written about Jewish music. I wrote about Jewish theology. Um, you could have written about um, tons and tons of different things, but you wrote about um, the Black Hebrew Israelites. But before we get into that, Brett, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you uh, were raised, what your childhood was like, and uh, what led you to want to be a rabbi. Thanks, Jeff. Um, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And I grew up at a beautiful synagogue called Temple Tefereth Israel in Cleveland. And I had a wonderful Jewish education, had many opportunities for Jewish learning and Jewish community. And while I was studying for my bar mitzvah, I had this epiphany that this was something that I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, I'm not sure if it was uh, the encouragement from my, my tutor or the immense power of being able to get everybody to stand up or sit down just by uh, indicating, please rise with my hands or please be seated with my hands. Um, Imagine how Moses must have felt. 
it's it's a lot of power, but great responsibility too. Um, yeah, in fact, I this might date us a little bit, but uh, my AOL Instant Messenger screen name when I was 13 years old was Rabbi Wiseman. So this is uh, um, a long time coming in a lot of ways. Well, uh, it's a gift to the Jewish people that you, you took this path, but you did take a circuitous path, right? You uh, were a limousine driver for a little while. You worked in the hospitality industry. That's true. Yeah, I, I worked um, as a chauffeur and concierge for uh, celebrities and uh, music artists. Um, I worked at a hotel setting up uh, banquet rooms. I worked as a coffee shop manager. And frankly, I, I see uh, my job as a rabbi as an extension of that, um, because I think that being a rabbi is being in the service industry. We're here to serve the Jewish people. And so um, I think my service industry experience is uh, to my benefit and hopefully to the benefit of my community. Mm. Totally. And and I also think in a lot of ways we are maybe more metaphorically um, chauffeurs in the sense of we have this tradition um, that unfortunately, you know, so many members of our community grow up or grow up to be very educated and successful in their own fields. Um, whether it's law or medicine or um, a craft or a trade of some sort. But this Jewish tradition, it, many of which, many, uh, uh, much of it is in uh, Hebrew or Aramaic and is inaccessible to, to our people in a way that if you're blessed like we were to study for five years and to live in Israel, it becomes a lot more accessible. And so I do view our role a lot of ways as chauffeuring our people to the parts of our tradition that would add meaning to their lives. And, and um, so maybe maybe I took a little artistic license, metaphoric license with that, but I think that uh, pays off for you too. As long as we can get everybody on board, that's what's important. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so Brett, what led you to want to write more specifically about the Black Hebrew Israelites? Um, so... Originally, I thought I was going to write my thesis on the word petach, which means doorway. Um, I was really interested in liminal spaces uh, throughout the Tanakh, um, which would have been a significantly different thesis. Um, I noticed that the word petach, uh, whenever it was used in the Torah, it would indicate a situation where there's this balance between life and death. And then um, we had a intensive to learn about Christianity uh, with Rabbi Dr. Josh Garraway. And in in his intensive, one of our projects was to pick a group of, um, a, a Christian group to do a research project and presentation. And so I had already had some interest in Black Hebrew Israelites just out of my own curiosity and interest and doing this research project, I realized that it would be a fruitful topic for uh, a rabbinic thesis. I, In my undergrad, I studied comparative religion, and so comparative religion has always been a uh, an important area of study for me. And... Yeah, I think that uh, Hebrew Israelism, the study of Hebrew Israelism is uh, something that's really important for Jewish communities today. And obviously, I, I wasn't aware of what was going to happen with, with Kanye and all of that, um, but I'm glad that I chose that course of study, especially um, as we see how Hebrew Israelism, Hebrew Israelism is progressing in 
today's day and age. And so your thesis was uh, a few parts, a few parts history, um, talking about how the development of this religion, which is uh, relatively new as far as religions go, right? Originates after the birth of America and, and even more recently, you know, maybe can trace its roots near the ideas about emancipation and the civil war and, and ending slavery. Um, but you also talk about, um, you, you did an ethnography. You went deep with members of a real breathing, vibrant um, black Hebrew Israelite community today in Los Angeles. Um, so I'd love to hear about that experience too. Um, why, why don't, before we get into their actual, uh, the history and ideology, what was it like working with um, and interviewing this community? Did you feel welcome? Did you feel like you were intruding? What was that like? Yeah. So because it was during COVID, I wasn't able to, you know, typically with an ethnography, you're supposed to immerse yourself in the community. Um, and so because of COVID, that really wasn't possible. And so I spent a lot of time watching their services and their learning sessions on YouTube. I was fortunate that uh, they are very adamant about putting everything out there, everything that they produce out there. Um, and so the experience of, of interviewing people was one that was, I think, nerve-wracking isn't the right word, but um, I eased into the process because I could tell off the bat that there was this level of distrust from the outside community. And I wrote a little bit about this in my uh, ethnography, but um, it makes sense because these are a group of people who are... Um, a lot of assumptions are made about their community, um, and they have been contacted by the FBI several times and are under scrutiny and under watch of government organizations. Um, and I think for the most part, they are trying to, well, we can talk about this in a little bit, but we can talk about their goals. But um, the experience was one of uh, trepidation and building trust. Makes sense, right? They're certainly not the first Black or African American religious movement to be investigated by the FBI. I mean, thinking Malcolm X, um, most Black notably, Panthers. Black Panthers. Um, so it makes sense that they would be uh, perhaps skeptical or, or at least a little bit uneasy about outsiders coming in. Um, as I think any any potentially persecuted religious movement. I mean, when somebody comes to, to synagogue, to, to Temple Israel in Memphis, and um, they're not from our community. Of course, we want to be welcoming at the same time. Safety is a concern um, in America in 2022, 2023. Um, so that makes total sense. But you were still able to learn with those constraints, COVID and um, being an outsider, you still were able to really compile a, a really, uh, I think, comprehensive and deep picture of their communal life and also their um, religious ideology. So um, what, Brett, what would you say um, is maybe the hallmark of their, of the ideology or the, the uh, yeah, the ideology, how they view themselves today? And then let's get, after we kind of establish what that looks like, let's get into the history of how did that develop? 
Great. So I think um, the best way to understand that is twofold. One is they believe that they are the true Jews, whatever that means. And that poses some serious questions, I'm sure, for your listeners. What does that mean? And what does that mean for us? Um, the other, I think, main area of how they view themselves is through the lens of Deuteronomy 28, which is uh, a chapter in the Torah near the end of the Torah that essentially describes the blessings and curses of Israel or for Israel. If they, if they follow the law, then they will receive these blessings. If they don't follow the law, then they will receive these curses. And these are um, integral to the black Hebrew Israelite belief. This is essentially their core text. So just as in traditional Judaism, or you call in the thesis just to, to distinguish between the two historical Jews, which is what we would probably call today just Jews. Um, historical Jews are Jews and Black Hebrew Israelites um, or Hebrew Israelites. Um, but just as Jews would say, okay, if we, the traditional covenant, the traditional no, notion of covenant between God and the Jewish people, if we, the Jewish people, keep the meets vote, the commandments, the laws, God will bless us. And if we don't, bad stuff will happen. So they're interpreting. So can you explain one more time how they view themselves fitting into that role? They are they are the true Jews and we are not. Correct. And it's it's a little complicated, but basically the notion is that the reason that African-Americans, and this is not my opinion, this is the opinion of the Hebrew Israelites, um, and I should also say, I apologize, but I should say that there are several different iterations of Hebrew Israelism. There are essentially four main categories. And the one that I focused on um, is essentially a Hebrew Israelism that accepts Jesus as a Messiah, leans into uh, the, uh, the Christian Bible as well as the Hebrew Bible as the source text for their beliefs. Um, so that's that's an imperative uh, foundational understanding. Do you have a follow up for that? Yeah, I would just say that um, as soon as you say that, I think that a lot of traditional Jews would respond immediately by, you know, our hackles kind of going up. How could you be Jewish and believe in the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus was a prophet? Um, and so I do want to just encourage our listeners to say a lot of this might immediately sound uh, or at first glance or listen sound strange sound incompatible with Judaism um I, I would just encourage us as as I'm going to try to do today learn learning from you Rabbi Brett um like let's just try to come in with an open mind and, and I think that will help us to at least come away with a, more, a deeper more well-rounded understanding we can agree or disagree with the legitimacy um or the historicity of of their religion but I think coming in with a little open mind will help us to to take away a fuller picture. Definitely. If we, if we acknowledge our bias going in and know what we know about ourselves and we look at this merely as a learning opportunity, if we if we uh try to be ethnographers, if we try to uh put ourselves in their shoes, putting, you know, um a little distance between what we know about ourselves and what we know about our own history and just take what they're saying at face value. 
as opposed to uh, with a judgmental lens, as, as you were saying, um, we get the most amount of learning possible. We get the most amount out of this conversation. And then we can do the work of building bridges and trying to understand uh, where they're coming from. Right. Which is, I think the it's, it's fortuitous for you, but also for our listeners. And I think for the Jewish community in North America that you did this work because it's becoming pretty clear that this is an issue that in a community that we're going to keep encountering as Jews in America. So learning a little bit about their history and where they're coming from, I also think will help inform how we respond and hopefully how we can, can, as you said, build bridges or at least at, at minimum diffuse the tension that would naturally arise from an encounter like this. Absolutely. So Deuter- taking us back a little bit to Deuteronomy 28, um, and would it, you think it would be helpful to read a couple of verses? Sure. Um, so just to give a little bit of context, Deuteronomy 28 is a series of blessings and curses, like I mentioned previously. Um, and there's essentially one piece that uh, that really puts a bow on the African-American experience, well, connecting the African-American experience with uh, Deuteronomy 28. Okay. That the Hebrew Israelites really uh, lean into. Um, and so there's this explanation that God is is going to scatter uh, Israel among all the people. If 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 you do not follow these commandments, God will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. I'm at Deuteronomy 28, verse 64 through 68. Uh, so God will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, whom neither you nor your descend uh, your ancestors have experienced. Yet even among those nations, you shall find no peace, nor shall your foot find a place to rest. Adonai will give you there an anguished heart and eyes that pine and a despondent spirit. The life you face shall be precarious. You shall be in terror night and day with no assurance of survival. In the morning, you shall say, if only it were evening. And in the evening, you shall say, if only it were morning, because of what your heart shall dread and your eyes shall see. And here's the kicker. Adonai will send you back to Egypt in galleys, which are boats, by a route which I told you you should not see again. There you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but none will buy. And so this verse 68, where uh, Israel is sold to Egypt, which, by the way, uh, is Mitzrayim uh, in Hebrew, which is a... Um, a play on words for a narrow place or a place of danger. Um, these Israel is being sold and sent on boats to a place that they have not known. Um, and you shall offer yourselves for sale, which is essentially uh, what happened in the uh, the the triangle trade, the slave trade on the uh, the west coast of Africa. Um, there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but none will buy. Um, I think that this is kind of a good transition to the next section, but this it's not a far leap to see how uh, Hebrew Israelites might see themselves or read themselves into this text. And I think the big question in this ethnographic research is how did it go from a metaphorical connection with this text to believing that this text is actually talking about them? Really, really fascinating, Brett. So 
makes total sense they would read themselves into a text about getting sent to this foreign and scary place in a boat and being sold into slavery. Um, and so the, the theological, uh, we were talking right before the, we started recording, but the theological implication is that God is somehow punishing them for something um, by selling, by them being sold into slavery in America. Um, so them viewing themselves as the historical Israelites, at least metaphorically. Um, but you're, what you're saying is at some point it changed from just reading themselves as a metaphorical uh, inheritor of the Israelite tradition to believing that they're actually the true Israelites um, that the Bible is talking about that and somehow has been a continuous chain uh, from the original Exodus to them as the true Israelites today. Um, but so is that what you're saying, Brad? Is that exactly. explanation? Exactly. And um, I think what I would like to highlight around the time of the Civil War, at the end of the Civil War, when uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, this was a time of major upheaval. And I think we can kind of narrow in on that moment of the shift between. Um, so during slavery, uh, Christianity was essentially imposed on Hebrew Israelites. Well, I should say, I'm sorry, Christianity was imposed on African-Americans, on African-American slaves. And um, I should say that that slaves had their own religion. Many slaves came as Muslims. There were probably a few Jews that came over uh, as slaves as well, um, who had, we know that there were Jews in Ethiopia. It's it's not far-fetched to know, to believe that there might have been a few Jewish people that were sold into slavery. Um, and Fascinating. I never considered that. Fascinating. It's wild. Yeah, um, it's, it's pretty wild. And um, actually... I'm blanking on the author's name, but there was a great article written in the foreword almost immediately following uh, the uh, the Kanye incident. And um, yeah, so anyway, we'll see, we'll uh, see if we can find that and drop that in the show notes. Great. Perfect. Um, and so the issue of religion as resistance has slaves always found ways to resist slavery, whether that was through gardening, whether that was through religion, whether that was through songs, resistance was, a or, or physical or violent resistance in slave revolts. And so resistance was always a core part of, of African-American slavery. And religion was one of those ways of resistance. And so when Christianity uh, it's it's no wonder that the Hebrew Bible was a far more attractive piece of text for uh, African-American slaves because it talked about the Exodus. It talked about the story of moving from bondage into freedom and more, more attractive than the New Testament. Correct. Correct. And so essentially what we what we see happen is these metaphorical comparisons between the realities of slavery and uh, post-slavery and reconstruction and trying to find this way forward. Um, see, I think this is an interesting point that, that I think Jews and African-Americans can uh, relate to is that we are both peoples who have had our identities externally imposed on us. And if we, um, 
if part of our resistance is trying to determine who we are internally, I think that it makes a lot of sense for um, Hebrew Israelism to try and develop this sense of identity. Does that make sense? So let me see. Let me see if I can unpack that a little yeah. bit. Um, for so first, but leaving aside the external identity just for a second, externally sure. imposed identity. When the Christians, um, who you know, the slave owners were largely Christian. Of course, there were some Jewish slave owners, but oftentimes they were Christian, and like you said, they encouraged their slaves to be Christian. Um, you point out in the thesis, ironically, um, they you a lot of the slave owners used biblical justification for owning slaves, um, and so it's ironic that they would then want their slaves to be Christian, right? If that's the thing that's justifying their slavery, then why would the slaves want to be Christian, want to be a party to that religion? So you say, uh, so therefore, and I think this is the really uh, great point you're making, that they wanted a Christianity or at least a religion that didn't, um, that didn't, was different than that of their oppressors who were using their religion to justify their slavery. Um, so in, so what you're saying, I guess, fr from the um, perspective of imposing an external identity, you're saying these were people that were from all these different places in Africa. Um, they didn't, they weren't necessarily, uh, wouldn't have had a shared identity, except for the fact that when they got to America, they were all of a sudden either labeled as, as slaves or as African-Americans, which I think is probably a term that came later, but they were lumped into this group and had a, this shared identity imposed upon them that they wouldn't have necessarily had otherwise. And same as the Jews, we of course always had a religion, but um, it, it, it wasn't until Europe in the uh, early middle ages or a little bit before that we were put in these ghettos or communities distinct from the other our, our Christian or Muslim neighbors. Exactly. Um, so it that I love the the way that you frame this because it makes so much sense that they would want to take control of their own narrative. They'd want to take control of their own identity, given that so much of their identity was externally imposed. Um and that's why they perhaps wanted to create their own religious doctrine or identity or communal identity um, in order to take control of, of their own destiny. Exactly. And so when, when slavery ends, we see this mass migration. Um, some people stay in the South and engage in sharecropping, but many people move North, uh, which we, we know as the Great Migration, and some people moved West towards the Oklahoma Territories and uh, California and that sort of thing. And the people who moved West were actually called exodusters, which uh, is a combination of, of exodus, right, and the dust that was the, uh, that was uh, famous in Oklahoma and Western Oklahoma. Um, and there's this wonderful quote, if you wouldn't mind me. Yeah, please. Uh, um, this is a, a, a one particular woman was quoted in the St. Louis Globe Democrat uh, talking about this, this leaving slavery and moving West. She said, quote, this is our Red Sea right here in St. Louis, between home and Kansas and out of bondage for sure. 
Here's the interesting part. She says, we've been set free by Master Lincoln, but it was just another set free as Pharaoh gave the children of Israel. You hear me? Then is a wavering and is afraid is going to sink here in this Red Sea. In other words, the view of, of Abraham Lincoln was that he was freeing uh, African-Americans in the same way that Pharaoh freed Israel, which is not a compassionate freedom, but almost out of his own grief, out of his own self-preservation, right? Pharaoh freed Israel because his, his firstborn child was slaughtered and because they had nine previous plagues against them. It was almost not even a free choice. Um, which is actually quite true because Lincoln had met with uh, with free slaves, uh, freed slaves previous to the Emancipation Proclamation, and wondered out loud if uh, if all African Americans could be sent back to Africa. Um, it was, uh, you know, something that's not talked about very often about Abraham Lincoln. But yeah, I'm not a I'm not a tremendous scholar of this period sure. by a long stretch, but. Was before Lincoln was elected president, he was an abolitionist, right? Right, but not in the yes, yes, and uh, in the sense that he didn't believe that slavery should exist, but also was not a uh, uh, seeking equality. It was not seeking equality between African Americans and Americans. Um, yeah. Anyway, more complicated issue than than maybe this this podcast has the bandwidth for. But I guess what I'm trying to point out is that. Um, that this notion of of African Americans as Israel is uh, seeking a type of freedom that is free from uh, American uh, it it's seeking a type of freedom that um, goes beyond just. Uh, freedom of body and freedom of, um, you know, not being slaves to some kind of spiritual redemption or, or like you talk about. And, spiritual uh, and financial. I mean, these are people who are looking to find like to f f like found black states, black cities, black uh, um, businesses to be free of American oppression, essentially. Which uh, you talk about, and I don't remember the scholar who, or the maybe the thought leader who came up with this ideology, but Bob Marley made it famous in Redemption Song, right? None but ourselves can free our mind, he said. Yeah. That's, a, that's a Marcus Garvey quote. It's a, and in fact, I would even go as far as to say that Redemption Song is a Hebrew-Israelite song. Um, uh, how long shall they kill our prophets while we stand aside and look? Some say it's just a part of it. We've got to fulfill the book. What book is he talking about fulfilling? Maybe it's Deuteronomy 28, right? Because old pirates, yes, they rabbi, told, stole I from the merchant ships minutes after they uh, took I from the bottomless pit. It is it is like 100% to me, it's very clear that he's referencing um, those blessings and curses from Deuteronomy 28. And so uh, when he quotes Marcus Garvey that... Uh, um, what does he say? It's uh, something about being able to free the body, uh, but we have to, like someone else can free our body, but we have to free our minds. None but ourselves can free our minds. Yeah. Um, you quote the whole thing in here in thesis. 
Oh, yes, here. We are going to, this is the Marcus Garvey quote, uh, we are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because whilst others might be free, might free the body, none but ourselves can free the mind. And frankly, this is uh, in line with um, uh, Viktor Frankl's opinion mm. about uh, that the last of any freedom that can be taken from somebody is the freedom of how to respond, which is the freedom of, of mentality. Um, and so I, I think there's a, an interesting parallel there between Garvey's uh, unwillingness to uh, bend his mental freedom to the will of his oppressors to Viktor Frankl's unwillingness to bend his mental freedom uh, against his oppressors. And the parallel doesn't stop there. I mean, there it's such a rich m- metaphor and parallel that um, when Israel was freed, the freedom from slavery was not the end goal, right? That was step one. The end goal was creating a just society in the land of Israel. And so, um, of course, we we have this exodus period, this uh, time we're wandering in the desert for 40 years to figure out how to be a just society. Um, but when you say that they these exodusters left the South and tried to form these, maybe not utopian communities, uh, but these all black or largely black communities in which they could engage with free from discrimination in not just uh, farming, but in banking and in um, every industry you can imagine, there, there's this parallel of them, um, just like the Israelites, wanting to create their, their own free society. It's great. But but also, I because this is, you, you point this out in the thesis, um, this metaphor, not just within the Black Hebrew Israelite community, which will come about a little bit after this period, but in the whole African American experience, this uh, parallel between the Exodus story, right? Harriet Tubman is Black Moses, right. um, viewing themselves. Uh, Martin Luther King, of course, um, I have seen the Promised Land, right? Um, this notion of them. Uh, viewing themselves, the the slaves or later freed slaves, as inheritors of the Exodus tradition is very, very key to their um, narrative, their ideology. Um, But the the difference is, and you point this out, and maybe we can spend a few minutes talking about where did it go, where did the transition happen, Brett, between viewing this metaphorically, oh, this story speaks to our soul and we see ourselves as the inheritors, so we are, we are actually the Israelites. Right. So one of my questions, I had, there was this great session with uh, the True Nation Israelite Congregation, which is one of the ethnographies that I did. Um, the I asked them, what is the origin? Like, how did they rediscover this fact about them uh, themselves? And like I said, I the way that an ethnographer works is to immerse oneself to not be judgmental, but to ask questions based on their perspective, right? So I'm going to ask questions that are um, through their worldview in order to understand the way that they think. So I ask them, how did they rediscover this fact about themselves, that they are the true Jews? How did they rediscover that? And while they didn't give me a great answer, Um, one member of the group offered an interesting anecdote. And he told me that when he first became involved with the True Nation Israelite congregation, his grandmother told him that he wasn't the first person to have this idea. And in fact, uh, 
when his grandmother was growing up in the 1920s in Oklahoma, uh, her mother, the grandmother's mother, spoke of a man who preached to the African-American community and the claim that they were Israelites. And this person's name was William S. Crowdy. And he is known in many circles as the founder of Hebrew Israelism. He essentially had this epiphany, this religious realization. He was called a prophet uh, by his community. And in fact, some people are quoted saying, like, I wouldn't be the person I am. I wouldn't have this sense of identity if it weren't for the prophet Crowdy's uh, vision about uh, the African-American connection to being Israel. So there, there is a distinction you draw in the thesis between um, Crowdy, Prophet Crowdy, and a guy named Frank Cherry. Um, can you talk about their two different ideologies and how they differ? Sure. Yeah. So one, one is a little bit more, or maybe a lot a bit more militant or extreme right. than the other. So I think Crowdy is much more interested in improving uh, the African-American experience. He worked with several um, Black nationalist figures to try and create uh, Black cities and Black states. He tried to actually make Oklahoma a entirely Black state. Um, and I think he was much more interested in African-American empowerment, whereas Frank Cherry, um, on the other hand, was, as you said, much more militant and interested in tearing down the systems of power um, and or even exposing the systems of power. Um, I didn't do that much, I wasn't, uh, I didn't do that much in uh, research into Frank Cherry, um, but my understanding is that he and his, uh, the people who follow in Frank Cherry's footsteps are labeled, especially by organizations like the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, and Morris Dees. Um, he, they essentially label those people as um, uh, like a hate group. Uh, yes, exactly. Problematic ideologies. Got it. Got it. Okay, so not all of them, not not all the Black Hebrew Israelites follow in that ideological mold. Many don't, right? Correct. Correct. Um, what so Lee may, maybe it's hard to pinpoint exactly when the moment was that the, may, perhaps it was prophet um crowdy who who started to say we are the original we are the original jews we are the original israelites not it's not just a metaphor or a symbol um what, one thing i think you point that you point out that i think is really uh spot on is so much of every religion or almost every religion are things that are just based on faith. They're not necessarily provable facts. They might even be historically um, not provable or, or historically false, right? Of course, the world was not created in seven days. The Torah says that as reformed Jews, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I'll just say I read that as a, a metaphor or as a, to teach us a lesson. Um, so Perhaps it's we shouldn't necessarily judge their community for believing something that is historically uh, untrue. Um, and yet, uh, yeah, so perhaps that shouldn't be something we judge them for. 
to be fair, there's no word for history in Hebrew, right? What's the what's the Hebrew word for history, Jeff? Historia. It's the English word. Yeah. What's the Shoresh for historia? No, um, ain't Shoresh. There's no Shoresh because it's not a Hebrew word. Exactly. So what do we have? We have Yizkor. We have memory. Mm. And I think like we are transmitters of memory. We're transmitters of stories. And those are the those are the priorities. Um, we're not really interested in the historicity. We're interested in how are we going to build a better tomorrow for the next generation? That's a great point. So speaking of this generation, uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about how they practice. Um, there is a notion of chosenness, which I think get is where maybe a lot of the conflict arises. Um, they, uh, the black Hebrew Israelites view themselves as the true chosen people and that the Jews are imposters. Is that how you would characterize it? Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's a good characterization. I mean, it's not a good characterization, an accurate characterization. Um, and I think um, I was thinking about this the other day, actually. You know, we have to ask ourselves chosen for what? And I think for the Jewish people, um, we have to ask ourselves, what are we chosen for? And it's not unreasonable for a historically oppressed group of people to feel chosen in some way. Um, another way of saying chosen might be picked on. Uh, why, why are we being picked on? For what reason are we experiencing this oppression throughout our history? And I think that it is not unreasonable for the African-American community to ask the same question. Why are we being oppressed? Why are we experiencing racism? Why are we experiencing police brutality? Why are we experiencing these systems of power that seem to only want or lead to more oppression? And so the notion of chosenness is not necessarily chosen by God as uh, as a holy people necessarily set aside, but, but chosen by society, chosen by uh, history as the people to be oppressed, chosen for oppression. So I want to push back on that a little bit. My understanding of, uh, first of all, within Judaism, there's a whole huge range of what does it mean to be chosen. Um, some people, uh, generally chosenness is thought of in Judaism as a good thing. God chose us, singled us out from all the other nations. Um People like Yehuda Halevi, the the medieval scholar, said that's because our blood. There's something unique about Jewish blood that is better, that is blessed, which we would, from a modern era, we would probably say is racist, or you know, we we might not necessarily agree with that. There there are other people, um, Maimonides, and late you know later uh, thinkers who would say no, we have a special mission. It's the meets vote. It's doing. Uh, God chose us to fulfill certain deeds on this this planet, and we have this special mission um, as Jews. And it's doing the mission that makes us special to God. It's not just that inherently Jews by Jewish blood were better. Generally, chosenness is, I would say, um, a positive thing, thought about as being a positive thing. What, would, would the Black Hebrew Israelites not... Um, by, by claiming that they're the chosen people, are are they 
claiming that that's a positive thing or are they claiming they're they're chosen by history to be the this perpetual victim that's a good question um i think and i'm i'm going to quote from jacob dorman's book the chosen people and he's okay by chosen people he's not referring to the jewish people he's referring to hebrew israelites and um he says that quote the belief in redemptive ethnic suffering of contemporary african descended populations is essentially a theodicy of deserved punishment which is uh referencing back to deuteronomy 28 and that um part of being chosen i think you you actually alluded to it in the sense that chosen to follow the commandments and so if if you've been selected to follow the commandments and you're not uh, following those commandments, then you've also been chosen to be punished. Um, and so I think that the core of the Hebrew Israelite religiosity is realizing their identity as the chosen people to, to follow the commandments. So I think um, Interesting. I, I, Interesting. I would agree with you more than I uh, previously stated. Interesting. So to, to explain to our listeners who might not know that uh, academic word theodicy a theodicy like job the book of job is a theodicy um how it what is a theodicy it's a idea about god that explains why bad things happen to people especially presumably good people or good presum- people. Yeah, right and yeah. so um you're saying that they're viewing them they're trying to make sense of why all this terrible stuff happened to them Right. Why did they become slaves? Why um, why were they stripped from their homeland and taken on a boat to another continent? Because they to make sense of it, they they are saying we must have done something wrong. We must not have followed the commandments. And furthermore, it explains why so many people are out to get them, so to speak. Um, and it's a divine punishment. Yes, yes, and like of course, people would try to keep. God's chosen people down, right? We 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 experience that in our own tradition. We uh right from uh from Haman to Hitler, right? We have this tradition of, I mean, it's not even a tradition, right? We we uh they tried to kill us, we survived, let's eat, right? That's our that's our our holiday format. And um it makes perfect sense for a and that's part of chosenness, I think, also is that like the world recognizes us as chosen and uh, doesn't want us to be chosen or is jealous of chosenness or um, they hate us because they ain't us, right? Or something like that. Um, so there is, through in Jewish, historical Jewish chosenness and in Black Hebrew Israelite chosenness, there are good, there's the good and the bad. Correct. Interesting. Correct. So, that does, though, manifest, and, and um, we will um, we'll get to this in a moment. Uh, actually, let me pause on that. We'll come back to that. I was going to talk about the negative aspects and, and the anti-Semitic aspects. But before I do that, um, why don't we spend just a few minutes talking about their, their practice today, too? Um, what does it look like religiously? And interestingly, unlike um, Christianity, who is a typically thought of as a supersessionist theologist? Um, they took Judaism. Actually, can you can you define supersessionism? Sure. It's the 
essentially undercutting the Jewish story to make your religion, and when I say your, I mean the religion that is supersessionist, to make that religion the true through line from uh, Second Temple Judaism to today. So, for example, um, the Church of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons, um, they use symbolism from the Second Temple, uh, such as the altar and and the building of, of these large temples themselves, as they see themselves as a direct continuation of the Second Temple, uh, the, after the destruction of the Second Temple. Um, it's essentially undermining the Jewish story in favor of their own legitimate claim as, as they perceive their own legitimate claim to the history of the Hebrew Bible, essentially. So whereas Jews, we view ourselves as the inheritors uh, or we view ourselves as an unbroken chain between right. Moses getting the Torah at Mount Sinai and today, whereas Christians would say, okay, well, the Jews were God's chosen people. Um, but then when Jesus was born, Jesus and his subsequent teachings and the teachings of his followers, John and Paul, um, they that became what God really wanted. And the way that the Jews uh, continued to do things after that isn't what God really wanted, right? But what God wants is what Jesus told us to do. Right. So therefore, when Jesus came about, they abrogated or they... Um, they said they dispensed with the need for all the biblical commandments that the Jews did, kosher, keeping Shabbat. They said, we don't need that anymore. What Jesus wants us to do, have faith, be a good person. Doesn't sound like that. that sounds pretty good to me. Um, uh, n- none of Jesus's teachings in that regard were were bad. They were all nice. Um, but the idea that as Christians, Christians do not have to fulfill the commandments in the same way that Jews do in order to be in relationship with God. Right. Black Hebrew. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, black Israelites um, essentially are supersessionists to both Christianity and Judaism. And they're saying that Christians have misinterpreted the Bible and have essentially bastardized uh, the new Testament, their Christian Bible um, by creating what um, they call folly days, as opposed to holiday holidays. Um, so Christmas is not a biblical holiday, so therefore the Hebrew Israelites wouldn't practice that. Easter is not a biblical holiday, so therefore Hebrew Israelites would not practice that. They they practice the religion. They practice the religion that they believe uh, Jesus practiced, and they uh, essentially their their practices are. Um, uh, we, we, we talked about this in our in our pre-meeting, but uh, Karaitic, essentially, which is uh, following uh, biblical commandments without the interpretation of uh, what what we have as the oral Torah or the Talmud. So they so the way that they observe the commandments probably looks very similar to how Jews twenty two hundred years ago observed the commandment. Well, yes, and. Um, only because uh, they are anachronistically looking back at them. So, uh, for example, we build a sukkah on Sukkot because that's what we are 
our Talmud teaches that we should build a booth in our house and it has all these rules and specifications. Well, they're not going to use the Talmud because the Talmud is the uh, the usurper's tradition, right? Meaning the historical Jews. And so they're going to look at the Torah and it says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. Well, they're interpreting that not in a way, they're going to go out and go camping as a community. They're going to uh, literally take their tents and go camping for seven days in the woods. So they're not going to build a uh, four-walled th- uh, structure, temporary structure with a roof that has to have more shade than sun, but still let this s- stars shine through. All the laws that the rabbis interpreted those verses in the Torah as saying, this is what those verses mean. They don't have any of that. Exactly. And another great example is to fill in. I asked uh, one of the uh, True Nation Israelite congregation uh, leaders, how do they interpret the verse uh, from Deuteronomy that we should bind them as a sign upon our hands and they should be for frontlets between our eyes? Um, our rabbis interpreted that as tefillin, that we should literally wrap uh, these boxes around our arms and put them as a sign between our eyes. And they interpret that as uh is that we should metaphorically bind the words of Torah on our hands, meaning we should do the work of Torah with our hands and that we should uh, have Torah at the forefront of our minds whenever we are conscious. Exactly. And maybe because it's so interesting, if we could just talk about Shabbat for one second, um, we in the Torah, there's only a couple commandments. You should rest, you should not light a fire, and you shouldn't gather sticks to presumably build a fire. The rabbis and the, the Talmud interpret that as 39 categories of work that we're not. So they, they say, well, building a fire is work. So what the Torah really means is don't work. And what is work? Well, there's these 39 categories of work. Um, what do they say? Yeah, so in historical Judaism, like we said, we have fences that we build around the Torah. Um, They specifically don't work. Um, They have no problem doing cooking, um, but they will actually, I'm sorry, they they do not cook. They do all of their cooking the previous day. Um, And so- Because they they wouldn't light a fire. Exactly, exactly. Um, So it's as minimalist or as uh, literalist, I guess, is the, um, the way- to understand that their practice is as literal as possible. Um, so they won't work, uh, they won't cook. Um, but they will drive, they'll drive their car, they'll use exactly. a cell phone. Exactly. Interesting. So um, let's shift a little bit from practice to, um, because I want to be respectful of the clock here. Um, how, what, when does this become problematic when when Hebrew Israelites encounter Jews? Um, where does the tension come from and um, how does it manifest? Yeah, so um, there's this great quote um, that is often attributed to James Baldwin, um, but it's not James Baldwin who wrote this quote. It's a guy named uh, Robert Jones Jr., who um, his Twitter handle was Son of Baldwin. And I think that that's why the quote was misattributed to Baldwin, but it's a wonderful quote. And I think it ties in directly to your question, which I'll ask you to ask once again, as I introduce this quote. Um, So uh, the quote is, 
we can disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and denial of my humanity and right to exist. And I think that this quote is so important for all aspects. We could talk about this quote uh, with regard to anti-Zionism. We could talk about this quote with regard to anti-Semitism. But I think within the Hebrew Israelite community and within the context in which we're talking about, um, there is this issue of needing to be the true Jews and denying the history of Judaism as being fake Jews. And the primary quote that uh, essentially um, that that is cited by the Hebrew Israelite community is from the book of Revelation uh, in the Christian from the New Bible. Testament. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Revelation 2 9. And it says, I know your afflictions and your prob and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are the Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this is a really intense. But can you can you repeat that just for emphasis? Of course. Yeah. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The issue, obviously, there are a ton of issues with this quote. The main issue is that this is not in reference to all Jews. This is in reference specifically to Jews of a specific community. Sorry, I'm uh, okay. Um, if you look back at the beginning of chapter two, it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? And then it says, to the church in Smyrna. And so this is talking to Christians who are living in Smyrna. By the way, there, there's a town with uh, that name in Tennessee, not far from here. S-M-Y-R-N-A? Yep. Amazing. So uh, it's... I, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, we pronounce it Smyrna. Smyrna. Perfect. Smyrna. So to the church in Smyrna, I'm sure there are a few churches in Smyrna. Um, and then it says, these are the words uh, of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is interpreted by the Hebrew Israelites to mean all Jews are a synagogue of Satan, which is extremely problematic and is uh, isogizing the text, essentially, reading something that is not there in the text. And it is clear that this text is referring to uh, Jews who the author deems as hypocritical and uh, in a specific location, meaning Smyrna. So it's not, so, but black Hebrew Israelites view it as these, the historical Jews, the people that call themselves Jews are the fake Jews. They're the yeah. one, they're the imposter Jews. We, yeah. we as Jews are the imposter Jews. Right. And so they, why is that important? Do you think to their understanding of themselves? Because we, we uh, you in the thesis bring up Maimonides, the Rambam, one of the top three most important Jewish scholars ever, um, who lived in, in Muslim Spain. He says, look, the Torah is full of wisdom. We know the Torah is full of wisdom. Other cultures will look to the Torah as a font of wisdom to inform their lives. 
Um, we shouldn't worry. Like, that's great. It's God's word that they're, t- they're taking into their lives. That's great. So we shouldn't be surprised that other religions are looking to the Torah f- for as a source of wisdom. Why do the black Hebrew Israelites uh, have to reject the historical Jews as a part of their identity? It's such a great question. And it's one that I am trying to think about, and I just cannot come up with a good reason. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely frustrating, especially since there is a huge opportunity within Hebrew Israelism. Um, I think, you know, to, to my, in my mind, the benefits of empowering African-Americans, giving people the sense of community, giving people a sense of strength. I think that there is, there are so many benefits to groups like the Black Panthers and uh, Black nationalism. I think that there are so many benefits to those type of types of philosophies and even ideologies. The problem, and it goes back to that uh, fake James Baldwin quote, I don't understand why there is any strength added by denying somebody else's history, denying somebody else's humanity. I just, it's, it's a, not an answer to your question because I don't have one. And I just, it is the most perplexing part of this whole thing to me that, that in some way their identity depends on denying our identity. And in you, in your discussion with, in your ethnography, your discussion with members of this community, did you ask them that? Yeah. And I think that that they basically gave me this quote, uh, this, this, this quote, and, you know, with an ethnography, the the James, the quote unquote, James Baldwin quote. No, no. They gave me the revelation two nine verse. Ah, So that's the justification. It, It is a, um, maybe not one based in reason, as we mentioned a minute ago, but for some reason they view that as as a ur text, as a proof text, exactly um, for their religion that we are the wrong Jews and they're the right Jews. Correct, and it's not the ethnographer's place to push back against a belief. It's only the ethnographer's role to uh, record the beliefs. Understood. Interesting. So how so how does this play out in day to day life? Um, we we. Um, about when when did this come out? It came out December fifth, around the time of um, the Kanye statements, right after the Kyrie Irving statement, um, and or Kyrie's tweet that he wouldn't apologize for, and I think he ultimately did apologize after. That's another conversation. Um, but there's a video of these Black Hebrew Israelites outside of a Barclays Center where Kyrie plays in Brooklyn, and um, the, it's very hateful towards Jews. Right. They're saying uh they're glad the Holocaust happened. Uh they're uh they're in favor of Hitler that they and, and maybe we'll play that um real quick. Let's we'll try to play that in the in the podcast. What about that? Why don't I feel good about yeah. what Kanye is saying? Both of them and Kyrie, what they got going on. Well I'll talk mainly about Kanye. I mean, right, what about Kanye? Why you don't feel good about what Jewish, he's saying? And he's praising You're half Jewish. Yes, and he's praising Hitler, saying the Nazis are cool and saying the Holocaust didn't happen. Yeah, no, we support Hitler. Right. All of you? Yeah. You know, because Hitler was killing your people, man. Hitler knew who the real Jews was. Ah! Right? Hitler wasn't oppressing my people. He was coming for your nuts. Holy right? 
And let me give, let me give you a wake up call, man. You're not a Jew. You're not Jew, right? You're the, you're the seed of the devil, man. Right? These brothers are so on, 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 on these platforms, Kanye, Kyrie, shaking things up. It's because it's a great awakening happening. Right? The real Jews are back on the streets. And you so-called fake Jews who stole our identity are going to go into slavery. Right? Because you're not, you're, because you're not a Jew, right? D did the Holocaust happen? It did happen, and we're and we glad that it happened. Did so, uh, right? so having listened to that audio, it's clear that when this ideology, the supersessionist ideology, the chosenness ideology, the ideology of um, Jews being false comes into the world, that that can be dangerous for and potentially lead to violence. Right. How how um, universal is that? Is is the more problematic part of it among Black Hebrew Israelites? And is this something we as Jews should be worried about? Yeah, I think I think uh, the marketplace of ideas is a good um, kind of metaphor for this this conversation. I think that the more the idea is disseminated, the more people believe it, and the more the the problem is, you know, when I started my research, the diversity in opinion was was great. There were uh, people who um, were essentially indifferent to Judaism. But as as that research continued on, I noticed shifts in the community's opinions about the Jews, uh, including uh, the problematic Khazar theory, which I'm happy to talk about a little bit if that's helpful, um, Holocaust revisionism, um, Jews as uh, primary uh, agents of the slave trade, these are all problematic and less than true um, claims. And the more these claims are made and the more people are given a platform, the more these ideas are dispersed throughout uh, the ether, um, the more people begin to believe these ideas. And I think that that's why it was so problematic when when you know, news station after news station and podcast after podcast, we're inviting people like Kanye on to um, essentially try and explain himself and for them to try and push back. It was problematic because they kept giving him a microphone and he wasn't going to budge. He wasn't interested in having an open conversation. And that's that's really the problem is is uh, if if there are no open channels of conversation and getting to know each other, because, you know, something that I've found in my own life is that it's much harder to throw a stone or an insult at somebody with whom you've shared a cup of coffee. And so I think, you know, the best way to end these kinds of conversations is by engaging and uh, going in with an open mind, however difficult and painful that might be, and by building relationships that would tear down these hateful uh, ideologies. So, so these ideologies, the ideology of the Black Hebrew Israelites, maybe isn't universally hateful. Right. But a large percentage of Black Hebrew Israelites do hold these hateful views about Jews. Is that right? Correct. And growing. And I would say in some circles more than others. Um, and frankly, like if you, um, you know, there are, it's, it's hard to explain, but there are, 
it's not a centralized religion. This is essentially an emergent new religious movement. And, um, you know, you have thought leaders that come and go and people who have huge platforms and people who have small platforms. It's uh, it's immensely diverse in its. Uh... So are they proselytizing in the way that a lot of Christian communities do? And, and is that one way that they're growing? Yeah, definitely. Um, especially in places like Los Angeles, Atlanta and New York City. Um where and in fact, you know, some Hebrew Israelite communities will expand beyond the African American communities and explain that the twelve tribes are actually various um, Hispanic groups, uh, Latin American groups, uh, Native groups, and um, yeah, it's it's uh, it gets it gets pretty uh, tangled when you, when you start looking at it from that perspective. But um, yeah, it's a, it's just so diverse. Yeah, if you look at the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League website, um, they have this, uh, I'm assuming the graphic is from one of their communities, and they have a graphic that shows all the 12 tribes, you know, Asher, Gad, the 12 tribes of Israel, and a non-white community in America, maybe not all uh, United States, but Mexico, Latin America, of different communities that they believe are the true inheritors or the true descendants of, of these tribes. Um, Brett, where, where do we go from here? What, what do we, is this something that we really need to be very concerned about and should devote resources and time in terms of outreach? Is it the kind of thing where haters going to hate, right? And you can't reason with people who are biased in this way. Um, what do you think? As, think, as probably the, the rabbi who's closest to this community of anyone in the country. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I think the first step is educating. So if you're listening to this podcast, um, you know, feel free to reach out uh, to Rabbi Dreyfus or myself. Um, I'm happy to give my thesis and resources that that um, might be helpful in, in the education of this, this issue. I think that uh, the more we know, the better off we're able to uh, combat hateful ideologies. Um, furthermore, there are um, groups in New York City who are Hebrew Israelite, but are not hateful at all. And in fact, they practice a Judaism that is uh, indistinguishable from our own. Um, and I think that, you know, the more hey, we- Brett, know, I wanna, I wanna inter interrupt for one second because our, you're saying, they practice a Judaism that's indistinguishable from our own today or from Correct. the of the Bible. Correct. No, indistinguishable from our Judaism today. And and would they call themselves Hebrew Israelites or yep. something different? Yeah, Hebrew Israelites, but um they uh they are adamant that they are not the black Hebrew Israelites from Israel United in Christ or True Nation Israel Congregation. They are they are distinct in fact um in the night they uh, in the 1930s and maybe 40s they um tried to join with the conservative movement but um i I'm, you can guess what happened uh with the uh conservative movement in the 1940s but um yeah anyway the point is that they that if you were to walk into their synagogue it, they use hebcal they uh follow our you know every, everything is exactly the same are, are they rabbinic in the sense, do they have the mission and the Talmud too? 
interest. So they are they have actually a very different path than the ones we've been talking about today. Correct. Okay, fascinating. I chose not to cover them in my thesis because a um, I they, they've been covered extensively in other books and. Um, yeah. Anyway, I briefly talked about them uh, in, the, in the thesis. Got it. Got it. So I I didn't mean to interrupt. And I want to give you the last word in terms yeah. of where do we go from here? Because I know we only have a couple minutes left. Yeah. So I think I think education is the first place. Um, I think also. Um, and this is going to be hard to hear. This is a bit of a tochacha, a bit of a, a rebuke. But we as Jews, especially white presenting Jews, need to acknowledge that um, whenever we respond to um, these claims of Hebrew Israelism as uh, anti-Semitic or um, problematic, and we use uh, whatever power we do have to respond to these, uh, to these claims, for example, with the Kanye West situation, um, when we respond with such uh, strength and gusto, the, the perception, not the reality, but the perception is that it is white people taking down a black voice. And we need to be aware of what privileges we hold as white presenting people, even though there are obviously a huge array of uh, ways in which Jews present um, in in Judaism, right? There, melanin varies throughout Jewish people. Um, but I think we have to be more and more aware of our own selves and our own privileges that, um, that we might not have been aware of previously. And we have to really ask ourselves, are we doing the best job we can to, uh, to create a more equitable society and to give voice to people who are historically disenfranchised. Because the reality is Hebrew Israelism is another expression of trying of trying to form black identity, African-American identity. And that story of trying to formulate African-American identity is one that is centuries old and really began when the first uh, ships left West Africa, and um, and we have to ask ourselves what is our role in um, trying to help people figure that 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 out, and are yeah. we going? Yeah, yeah, fascinating, Brad. I mean, uh, just to respond to that very briefly, I I it leads me to a deeper understanding of why you were moved to write this thesis, that um, even though th these um, this often comes out as anti-Semitism or, or yeah, anti-Semitism, um, we should, we as Americans, whether we're white or black um, or, uh, you know, some other racial group, we should be sensitive to, to people who've been oppressed. Um, and we should be supportive. As, who, who should be more supportive than Jews as we've been oppressed for a very, very long time? Um, and so that should inform how we respond and how we relate to these people. Um, we might need to put our egos aside and we might, we might need to put our own, 
our own sense of self and dignity aside and, and create a little bit of space for somebody else to try and figure out who they are and, and how they, uh, how they are. Right. But, but on the other hand, we also shouldn't be naive to the fact that this is a potentially dangerous and, exactly. and also hateful situation. Yeah. Exactly. So Brett, I just really want to thank you for um, adding so much complexity to the what we might have heard on the news or what we might have seen on Twitter or Facebook um, and giving us giving us a much rich, more rich understanding of this community and hopefully as Jews um, a little deeper sense of who we are um, and and how we view our own narrative um, now having learned about this community. Thanks Jeff and thanks Temple Israel for having me on. Thanks so much for being here Brett Rabbi Brett Wiseman. Um, Temple to Her Sinai in Seattle, one of our sister congregations. Um, we're so glad you joined us. Uh, tune in next time for another episode of Torah to the People. Take care.